The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. Glad to be with you here this morning. Every week we preach from the Bible, and you're going to need yours this morning. And so please get out your Bibles or your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along. If you do not own a Bible, we have some in the seats in front of you. And we'd invite you to visit us in the Welcome Center after service. We have Bibles there we'd love to give you as a gift for you to take home and read it. This month we have been in a short series on leadership, and we've uh, talked specifically about the roles of elders and deacons in the church. And this morning, our aim is to gain a positive theology of power and authority, a theology of power and authority, what it is, its purpose, and how it can be both used and abused. And I hope this morning you will feel a sense of tension when we talk about these topics, the tension of power and authority is this. On the one hand, Scripture holds out for us that we ought to submit to those who are in positions of power and authority. On the other hand, Scripture is very realistic about the reality of those with authority and power abusing their authority and power. And so how do we live and walk as Christians faithfully in light of this tension, especially in a world that is ripe with examples of abuse of power and authority? There's four topics that I want to cover this morning as we work through this together. The topics are these. First, I want to define power and authority with you. Second, I want to talk about submitting to power and authority Uh, Third, we'll deal with the abuse of power and authority. And fourth and finally, I'll have a few brief application points uh, for us as we move away from here. And you'll see in your bulletin that Ezekiel 34 is listed as the sermon text. We're actually not going to get to Ezekiel 34 until point number three. So we're going to walk through several other scripture passages, many of which we read in our service this morning. And so I hope you're ready to to follow along. And Ed is going to do his best to follow along with us back there. All right, so before we jump in together, let's pray. Father in heaven, we have read this morning, we have sang that you alone have all power and authority and you alone are worthy of praise. And so all power and authority we have in this life come from you. And even now as we sit under the power of your word, help us to handle it humbly and respectfully, not thinking ourselves the authority to judge it for ourselves, but instead humbly receiving it and sitting under your authority this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's begin by defining power and authority. These are very important themes in the scriptures, and as Christians, we need to know what power and authority are. We need to know, we need to have a positive theology. What I mean by that is we, we not only be able to, need to know how to define power and authority negatively as, as its abuse and how to beware of it, but we also need to know how to handle it rightly, what it's for. What is power and authority for? And I think one of the reasons why churches so often have proven incapable of preventing and responding to abuse is because we don't actually have a theology of how to handle power and authority rightly. And so we don't know what to do with it 
when abuse comes to light. So what do we mean when we say power and authority? Well, there's, we can't say everything that can be said, but I have six brief points to help us inform a theology of power and authority this morning. First, as we've said, all power and authority in this world begins with God. Psalm 106, 8, we read this morning, said that he saves his people so that he might make known his mighty power. This includes his power to save, but also his power to rule and govern over his creation and all of human history as he pleases. Theologians refer to God's power and authority as two of his lordship attributes. Theologian John Frame, some of you may be familiar with him, he says that the relationship between God's power and authority is the relationship between might and right. Power means that God has the ability to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases. Authority means that he has the right to do it. So all power and authority in this world begins with God. Second, power and authority are given to us by God as a gift. This is precisely Jesus' point in John 19 when he's speaking to Pilate. Pilate essentially says to Jesus, why aren't you responding to me? Don't you know I have the authority to take your life? And Jesus says, "Uh, slow down, bro. Any authority you think you have would have been given to you by my father. Romans 13.1 says that there is no authority in this world except that which was instituted and given by God. There is no authority except which is from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so now when we move into this realm, when we're talking about God's power and authority, it's been given to us as a gift, when we start to try and define power and authority more in the human realm, in light of human relationships, it gets a little bit trickier to define. And I think some of you know this. If I I were to ask you, tell me the difference between power and authority, you might sort of hesitate for a moment to know how to parse the two. A couple theologians who I think I've written on this very well and, and very extensively are Dr. Diane Langberg and cultural theologian Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch has written two books on this, and he defines power as the ability to make something meaningful out of the world, to make something meaningful out of the world, and he defines authority as the capacity for meaningful action. And I was actually able to engage with him a little bit this this last week on Twitter, and I asked him to expand his views a little bit, and he said, uh, authority generally conveys power that is seen as or wants to be seen as legitimate. Dr. Diane Langberg, she is a Christian psychologist and she is a expert on abuse, especially the abuse of power and the effects of trauma. She has written a book called Suffering and the Heart of God and every parent, teacher, and leader in this room needs to rush out and buy it and read it. Suffering and the Heart of God. She defines power as the ability, capacity, or strength to influence, shape, or command. 
And so I think working definitions for us this morning on power and authority, when we're speaking of human power and authority that's given to us as a gift by God, is this. Power is the ability to make something meaningful out of the world or to influence in a meaningful way. And authority is the capacity to do so in a legitimate, God-ordained way. So this is the kind of power and authority when we say it's given to us by God as a good gift. That is what we mean. So third, to be human means to be one trusted with power and authority. Power and authority are essential attributes of image bearing. Genesis 1.28, God tells Adam and Eve to subdue creation and exercise dominion over it. Subdue and dominion are power and authority words. So to be human means to be one trusted with power and authority. And so from this point, we can see that actually a key component of suffering and victimization is powerlessness, to be stripped of that image-bearing power given to us by God and to treat someone else as being less than human, as one who is not worthy of power and authority and respect. Fourth, When used rightly, power and authority multiply themselves. Power and authority multiply themselves. They are not a zero-sum transaction. Power and authority are not a currency to be traded like money. When God gave authority to his image bearers to subdue creation and have dominion over it, it's not like he lost authority. He multiplied it. When Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28 and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore, it's not like Jesus lost his power and authority. He multiplied it. And so all power and authority, when it is used rightly, it is not something that we hold on to and jealously guard. It is something that we give and multiply freely. Power and authority multiply themselves. Fifth, Power and authority always seek the good of those whom they serve. There is a sacrifice involved with the proper use of power and authority. Andy Crouch in his book, Strong and Weak, says that authority, true authority, true godly authority must enter into a place of vulnerability. And he defines vulnerability as the exposure to meaningful risk or loss. Those who use godly authority, those who have godly authority, will use their position and their power for the good of others, even when it involves becoming vulnerable and entering into a place of risk and potential loss. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus did for us as we read in Philippians 2, 6 and following, which, which says that although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's power language. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So all power and authority seek the good of whom they serve through some kind of sacrifice and willing vulnerability. And finally, when used as intended, power and authority bring flourishing to those who receive it. God's authority over the dead was what made Jesus' resurrection possible. It was his power which accomplished 
Jesus' resurrection. Scripture says that Jesus was raised to new life by the power of God, and it's by that same power which we now live. Acts 1.8 says that we will receive the Holy Spirit with power. So to be a Christian is to be one who is trusted with power. Power to help lives flourish as God intended, through the Spirit, as his gospel is proclaimed, and as we work and display God's power in our lives for the good of others. Friends, power is good. Authority is good. And power and authority have great potential to accomplish great good in this world. But when they are mishandled, when they are abused, they also have the potential for great disaster. And power and authority can be used to accomplish wicked, destructive, horrible ends. Again, to quote Andy Crouch, he captures this tension when he said this, here is what we need to discover about power. It is both better and worse than we could imagine. Power is both better and worse than we could imagine. So what does it mean then to submit to power and authority? Scripture speaks often and regularly about submitting to those who are in a power and authority. And perhaps when we define power and authority positively, as we just did, we can see why Scripture puts such an emphasis on submission to power and authority, because it's for our good. People who are given power and authority, if it is being used rightly, it is for our good. It is to bless us. These people who have power and authority in this world are ordained by God and it is God's intention that that power and authority would be used in a godly way. But when we speak of submitting to power and authority, I think that's difficult for most of us. Not only because of the reality of abuse, which we will talk about in a moment, but also because we live in a hyper individualistic, autonomous, anti-authority age. One might even say that rebellion and autonomy is a part of the DNA of the natural man. Is it not the case that Adam and Eve were tempted to be like God in wisdom and in power, and in knowledge. Perhaps it was Adam's reasoning, yes, I want to subdue and exercise dominion over creation, but on my terms, and not on God's terms. And so the fall of mankind began with a temptation to seek power and authority for ourselves, and to buck against those who have power and authority against us. You know, I first became a Christian about nine years ago, I remember having a conversation uh, with my best friend about this, and we were talking about, you know, at that time there were were examples of power and authority being abused in the church and sort of the church being too political and, and all of that. And so I remember my friend asking me, well, aren't you worried about that? Aren't you worried about the abuse of power and encountering that in your time in the church? I said, oh, I am, but I have it all figured out. I have it all figured out. I'm just, I'm gonna go to church, but I'm never gonna get involved. 
And that way I'll never know. If, it, if it's happening, I'll never know about it, right? Ignorance is bliss. Well, look at me now. <laughs> Part of my walk as a Christian has been learning submission. Submitting to those in authority over me even when I disagree with them. Capturing, I think, our, our culture's uh, sort of resistance to power and authority. Uh, many of you, you're probably aware of the satire website, The Onion. A number of years ago, The Onion ran an article titled, Nation's Experts Give Up. And the headline of the article went like this. Citing years of frustration over their advice being misunderstood, misrepresented, or simply ignored, America's foremost experts in every field collectively tendered their resignation Monday. God commands us to submit, and that is hard for us to do. God commands us to submit to power and authority in the civil realm, in the home, and in the church. He says that we ought to submit, respect, and pray for our governing leaders. That's Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2. That includes corrupt leaders or those who we disagree with. You recall that Saul sought regularly to take David's life. And not only would David not lay a hand against God's anointed, but he refused to even speak ill of him. That ought to inform how we post on social media. Peter tells the church, to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, and he was writing to a church that was being persecuted by every human institution. God also says we ought to submit in the home. That includes young children submitting to the instruction of parents, older children submitting to the care of aging and widowed parents. That's the fifth commandment. Ephesians 6, 1 Timothy 5, uh, wives are to submit to husbands as husbands vulnerably lay down their life and seek the good of their family. There are instructions to honor, respect, obey, and submit to leaders in the church. Hebrews 13 actually says it is the responsibility of church members to make it a joy for leaders to lead. Not just to grumbly and sort of begrudgingly submit, but to actually make it a joy for leaders to lead. Maybe to say this more positively, in a healthy power and authority relationship, those with the power and authority seek the joy of those whom they lead, and those being led make it a joy to be led. And by the way, these three examples of civil, home, and church, these are not an exhaustive list of the kinds of relationships where we ought to embody submission because after all, scripture also says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A key mark of the Christian life ought to be a cheerful and happy submission and not a proud and arrogant defiance. And so what does this mean? Well, in an, in an autonomous, highly autonomous, highly individualistic culture like ours, where abuse can be found in every institution, in every political party, in 
celebrities and in every state, in every city, every town. This actually means that we need more power and authority in this world and not less. We need more of the right kind of power and authority in this world, the kind of power and authority that produces empowerment, that produces life, and that produces flourishing. This is the kind of power and authority that only God can give. And friends, if we as Christians, if we live as those who are wary of authority, if we live as those who do not trust authority, if we, if we speak poorly of our leaders, then what are we communicating? If we trace our theology backwards, we are, we are communicating that God cannot be trusted. What we are saying is that power is not a good gift, which means God is not a good gift giver. We are communicating that God does not know what he is doing with power and authority, and we are communicating that the gospel is not good news, but the actions of an abusive tyrant. In their book, New Power, best-selling book right now, authors Jeremy Hymas and Henry Timms argue writing, they're not, they're not Christians as far as I know, they are writing and they argue that what our world needs less of is what they call old power, and what our world needs more of is new power if we want to see positive change in our world. They define old power as currency that is held by few. They say that old power, once it is gained, it is jealously guarded. The powerful have substantial store of it to spend, it is closed, it is inaccessible, and it captures people. They define new power not as a currency, but as a current. They say it is made by many, it is open, it flows freely, it distributes, it's most forceful when it surges among many. The goal of new power is not to hoard it, but to channel it. Now, friends, I ask you, what does that definition of new power sound like? Doesn't that sound a lot like what scripture says power and authority should be? By the way, I read that book after I wrote point one this week. The kind of power and authority that God gives to image bearers and promises to give in abundance to those whom he redeems and saves is the kind of power and authority that, is, that our world is longing for and they don't even know it. So are we going to be the ones who unleash God's power and authority in this world? And will we be the ones that can model that submission is good when power and authority is used rightly? So we ought to have a spiritual instinct, a spiritual disposition to submit, but we need to deal with the reality of the abuse of power and authority as well. And I mentioned in my email this week that I'm not going to get into specifics on this, wanting to give an opportunity for families especially to talk about this, but we will be dealing more with specifics on abuse of power and authority later this year as we're rolling out our new child protection policy. As I said before, it's best for us to define our theology and our practice positively, right? We shouldn't be those who, who, who can only state what we don't believe, but we ought to be those who can state what we do believe and what our theology is good for. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a saying, some of you know this, there's a saying in law, so Dave, you know this. 
that hard cases make bad law, right? And the idea is that the sort of the really difficult, the extreme cases are really bad uh, ways to go about making laws that apply much more generally to everybody else, right? You make the laws based on sort of the general cases. Well, similarly, we shouldn't define power and authority merely off the threat of its abuse, right? We ought to be able to define power and authority for what it's used for, which is what we have done. But we also need to deal with the reality of what happens when it is abused. And we know examples of this in our culture. It's prevalent with celebrities, politicians, news anchors, in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our churches. In 2015, author and pastor Paul Tripp wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. It's a bright orange book. You may have seen it. And he warned of the dangers of ministry and the traps facing pastors and ministry leaders, especially in light of what is often spiritually unhealthy cultures of pastoral authority in our churches. On the back of the book, there were five pastors who recommended the book to be read, right? You read the recommendations and they say, this is the book all pastors and church members need to read in order to understand how to, what pastoral authority is, right? That was 2015. Fast forward four years. Three of those five pastors are no longer in ministry. One of them, because he used his uh, position of authority to enter into an affair with a church member, One, because he abused his power to exercise domineering leadership over his congregation. And one, because he has now, as far as we know, walked away from the faith. On top of that, we have heard by now, if you've been here for our grace presentations, we know the statistics of even just sexual abuse in our culture, which say that at least... One in four young women before the age of 18 and one in six young men before the age of 18 will be sexually abused. And that is just that one kind of abuse. It doesn't cover emotional, physical, and other kinds of abuse. I don't need to give any more examples. We need to know how power and authority can be abused and what that looks like. Dr. Diane Langberg, in her book, Suffering in the Heart of God, which you all are going to buy after service today, she says that power and authority is abused whenever it is used to exploit the vulnerable or when it is used to exploit trust. And if we go back to all of the scriptures that we saw on the positive use of power and authority, the implication there is that if any of those principles aren't being followed, then it's likely that abuse is taking place. Sometimes it's power alone that is abused. This is, for example, a playground bully or a sibling who uses their physical power to abuse someone else. Other times, both power and authority are abused to get together. So a boss or a pastor who, has, who emotionally abuses someone under their care. The scary thing is that knowledge, even theological knowledge, is a kind of power and authority, and that too can be abused. 
And often there are multiple layers of abuse taking place at the same time. So we see abuse of presence and power, or of physical power and emotional power and knowledge, and all these things happening at the same time. And friends, no book or resource on this planet speaks to these realities better than Scripture. Scripture is full of examples which serve us both as a warning and as insight to how abuse happens and how we can respond to it, uh, prevent it, and care for those when they have been abused. So uh, stories that many of us are familiar with in the Old Testament, David and Bathsheba, right? Amnon and Tamar. Here's examples of men who not only abused women, but were likely abusing their servants, coercing them to take part in sin. The Pharisees manipulated, coerced, and bullied the people of Israel. That's every other page in the Gospels. But I think there is no better passage in all of Scripture that speaks to the reality of abuse and God's protection and care for victims. There's no passage better than Ezekiel 34. So we're not going to read this in whole, but I do want to take a moment to look at the excerpt of Ezekiel 34 as you find it in your bulletin. I ask that you read along as I read from this passage together. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek it out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Well, this text speaks for itself, doesn't it? God appoints those who are in power and authority, and he is against those who use their power and authority to wicked and destructive ends. It is not going to go well for those who abuse their power and authority. That much we can be certain of. Power and authority are good gifts from God. Our general 
disposition and our spiritual instinct, as it were, ought to be to submit to those who are in power and authority over us. But we also must be aware of the reality of abuse, what it is, and how it happens. We need to know that there are times not to submit, such as when an emotional manipulation is taking place, or when there is an abuse of money, domineering leadership, or, of course, physical or sexual abuse. And so what does all this mean for us? I have five thoughts for us that I want us to take away and meditate on as a church together. These will be brief. First, we ought to receive power and authority with humility. As image bearers, we have power and authority to steward creation. As Christians, we have the power of God in us to proclaim the gospel and to seek new and flourishing life in others. And that is a gift that we ought to receive with fear and trembling and humility and respect. To those who are in positions of recognized authority, such as teachers, doctors, parents, husbands, elders, deacons, bosses, managers, you have a legitimate capacity, a God-ordained capacity to exercise power with great effect. And that is a gift for you to receive with humility. With humility. Recognizing that that is a gift given for you with the sole purpose of glorifying God and for the good of others. That is why God has given you that gift. Second, we ought to be those who model godliness through submission. We are all in submission to someone else. As we've read, we are in submission to one another, and we're in submission in the church, the home, the government. As an assistant pastor, I am in submission to Charlie, the session, and our presbytery. As a husband, I'm in submission to God and I am accountable to those Christians in my life who can see my life and rebuke me when I am living a life of sin or possibly abusing my power and authority. And friends, there is a lesson here in Scripture if we are willing to listen. Submit does not mean agree. Submit does not mean agree. You don't have to agree with someone to submit to them. In fact, you all probably know that there are often times in our lives when we are submitting and we do not agree, such as when we do what a boss tells us to do and we disagree with a decision. Or maybe a volunteer leader asks us to do something we don't agree it's the best choice, but we do it because we're in submission to those who have been appointed in leadership. Unless it is sin or gross abuse of power, we ought to have an instinct, a disposition to submit with joy and gladness. It is when we disagree, but still submit, when we model to others that we agree with God's good design for power and authority. Third, we must take seriously the reality of abuse. Parents, it is your responsibility to talk with your kids. 
It is your responsibility to teach them what abuse is and what grooming behavior looks like. Leaders, it is your responsibility to make yourselves accountable in your respective spheres of influence. Friends and family, it is your responsibility to learn how not to be dismissive when abuse comes to light. Church members, it is your responsibility to be equipped to recognize signs of abuse and know how to prevent, report, and care for victims. That is all of our responsibility. And so, later this year, we are going to be rolling out our new child protection policy that we've been uh, creating in light of our partnership with the, with the Grace Ministry that many of you know about. And this policy is going to operate much more like a manual for our church on how to equip and prevent and recognize and respond to abuse. And so I'm asking you now to prepare yourselves to receive this new policy and to be prepared to submit to it when it rolls out. We believe that this new policy is going to serve our church and serve those who have been victimized by abuse. And so prepare for it now. Prepare to receive it with gladness and join us in training when we ask you to show up, ask you to come so that we can own the policy together. Fourth, I want to make a brief exhortation to our elders and deacons, those of you who are in the room. I want you to consider how you can seek ways to multiply your power and authority in the church. As we saw, godly power and authority multiplies itself. And the way that happens as Christians is through intentional discipling relationships. We disciple others for the purpose of raising up more leaders and empowering others to serve. In particular, I want you to consider how we can be multiplying power to those who may not typically have it. Now, we are a complementarian church, which means we believe God created men and women with equal value and dignity, but each for unique roles, particularly in the home and in the church. And so we humbly and we happily embrace Scripture's teaching that male elders, deacons, and husbands ought to be those who lead in the church and the home. That's our church's position. And yet... Brothers, fathers, when we only teach about elders and deacons and only communicate about what men can do in the role of elders and deacons, we often unintentionally are implicitly communicating, here are all the things women cannot do. That's not intentional, it's not malicious, but it is the way communication works. In 2017, our denomination released a study report on the role of women in ministry I'm quoting from this study report. It says its aim was to foster a robust complementarian position and practice that creates a culture which welcomes and encourages the ministry of women in the PCA in ways that are consistent with the Bible's teaching as expressed in our confession and polity. It is filled with great studies as it examined churches and practices, and it is filled with wonderful recommendations for churches to implement. And I would ask 
in particular, that our session in diaconate revisit that study report and look for intentional ways to multiply power and authority as appropriate to women in our congregation. Fifth and finally, let us be those who trust ourselves to the one who has perfect power and authority, Jesus, our shepherd. And I hope that as we were reading Ezekiel 34, you had echoes of John 10 in the back of your mind. That was intentional. God promised in Ezekiel 34 that he would be our shepherd and Jesus comes to us as that shepherd, as the one who will bind up the wounded, as the one who will bring back his flock, as the one who will protect us and seek and provide for us. He puts himself in the ultimate place of vulnerability, laying down his life for our sake. And so as we wrestle with these subjects of submission, this potential for great life and great good, but also potential for great harm and great evil, let us trust Jesus. And a final word, if you're here this morning and abuse of power or authority is a reality for you, either now or in the past, then I know that I would be asking too much to ask you to trust us this morning. But I am asking you to give us a chance. Give us a chance to bring Jesus to you, to bring Jesus to you so he can care for you. We trust Jesus as our shepherd. And I think if you give us a chance, you will too. Let's pray. Father, we need a positive theology for power and authority so that we know what it is to be used for, how we can use it for great good in this world, to bring life and flourishing to a world that is longing for the kind of power and authority that only you can give. And yet, Lord, we must not be ignorant of its abuse, passive, uncaring, dismissive, and so, Lord, help us to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in these matters, to take your word seriously and to become equipped to be those who can exercise power and authority, who can submit to it, and also know how to recognize, prevent, and respond to its abuse. Lord, we trust all of these things into your hands because we pray them in Jesus' in Jesus's name. Amen.